Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Greenwood of Owners show. Me and Sam have just interviewed the man who sold the club to Mike Ashley. Sir John Hall revolutionised Newcastle United and put them back on the map. They were so close to winning the Premier League, but they entertained us so much, Sam. And it was surreal for the majority of the time to be in the company of Sir John. But what an experience. Yeah, it's been in the pipeline for a while. Um, so, first got in touch with Sir John a couple of months ago. Um, well, I first had the idea way beyond that. And then shout out to Lee, who obviously was present at the recording and did the did the uh, cameras and the, the mics, the production on it. Um, first told him I'm going first to John to, to come on the podcast. He laughed at me. He says, you've got no chance of getting him. I said, hmm. leave it with me. Um, tracked a couple of bits down and then one of our previous guests gave us another helping hand um, to point me in the right direction. Um, got an email address emailed Sir John. I mean, let's not forget, he's 88 years of age. Um, still sharp as a tack, mine. And uh, the next day he rang me, which was odd, surreal, but things were about to get a whole lot more surreal when you sat in his uh, living room. But, uh, yeah, he was absolutely lovely. What do you want to do? Blah, blah, blah. So most of the time we record these remotely and in our front room, dining room, kitchens, bedrooms, wherever, and the guest just dials in. But uh, no, no, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do it in person. So it took a bit of extra planning. And, yeah, eventually we got a date set where we were all free. And uh, I made the three-and-a-half-hour journey up. Uh, Johnny and Lee made the 10-minute journey across. And uh, there we are. We're sat in the presence of uh, a knight of the realm and the former owner of our beloved Newcastle United. It's probably one interview that you'll go, when we were starting this up, Sam, going, going to be extremely tough to get, going to be very, very difficult to get, because Sir John doesn't do many interviews now, and quite understandably, you know, 88 years, he'll probably just want to enjoy his life and, you know, be able to, spend time with the grandkids and the great grandkids, as he mentioned to us. And he just loved talking about Newcastle United, but he's very switched on, as he said, in terms of the business side of things, in terms of his own wealth and how he made the millions, you can tell that he was very switched on. And it's a podcast not to be missed. It it really, it really, um, it really is. And you've got to, you kind of got to get into Sir John's mind a little bit. That's how I, when we were interviewing, I thought, ooh, let's get into his mind. Let's see what he was thinking at the time. And I always thought that everything that he did, and some people will argue this because we've got even a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of argument, but there's a bit of arguments in the comments. But I, I, I definitely think what every, every decision that he did or tried to do was always in the best interest of Newcastle United. And that's all you can ask for of an owner, in my opinion, So I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I, um, I would do, yeah. Um, I mean, this is why the, it's a special two-parter, because there's so much to digest in this. Um, yeah, no owner is perfect. 
and is going to make the right decision every single time because they don't have a crystal ball. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd sooner have Sir John Owen in the club than Mike Ashley. But as I say, I'd, every every owner of every football club gets stick in grief about this, that and the other because no one, everyone will make mistakes and everyone will do something that someone somewhere will disagree with. But like you say, Johnny, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I've always liked Sir John, one of... My early memories of supporting Newcastle was was Sir John, Kevin Keegan, and, and that 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 team. And Sir John never shied away from his ambition for the football club and talking to the fans. And it's a far gone cry from where we are nowadays. Sir John Hall, a fan who never wanted to, who never wanted to be the owner of Newcastle United, but ended up being the owner of Newcastle United in his own words. He, wanted, he said that'll be on his gravestone. Um, but what what an experience, as we've mentioned. But like Sam says, especially in this first part, Kevin Keegan gets mentioned a lot. And how he became a Newcastle fan, how, how he became Newcastle United owner. So there's some very, very interesting stories. And you've got to make sure you watch part two, which we'll do. Listen, you, can't yes. watch the, you can't watch an audio. Because the thing is, right, people probably have heard this a couple of times now, right? But because I can see you, I keep forgetting that as a listen because I can see you right in front of you. Okay, I'll turn my <laughs> camera off then in future. <laughs> but uh, uh, absolutely brilliant. And again, big thanks to Sir John for letting us in and uh, doing the interview. And again, a big thanks to Lee behind the scenes. But without further ado, this is part one of a very special agreement with Mull the show. And it is with Sir John Hall. Hello everyone, welcome back to a very special episode of the Green and Mullen Show. We are joined by a man who owned our magnificent football club, Newcastle United. A man who managed to get success in the modern era for Newcastle United, and that is Mr Sir John Hall. Sir John, how are you? I'm fine, fine. Getting old, I'm 88 now, I'm basically retired, semi-retired, living with a family and basically, um, oh, that's been good. And sort of, when you get to my age, you, you reflect on it. And one of those great reflections is Newcastle United. And uh, looking at it where it is, where we come from and where it is now, it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of some concern. I mean, you've got a fantastic part of the world here. And when the sun's shining like it is today, um, I suppose it's a perfect place to, to reflect and reminisce about the good old days. Yeah, yeah. You kind of live in the past. That's one lesson I learned basically when you're in the northeast. So often we've lived in the past, in the mining industry, in the old industries. Um, you've got to look forward, and it's how we take ourselves into the 21st century, the fourth industrial revolution. And I suppose that's all part and parcel of looking where sport's going to go, because sport plays a very important part in the lives of the people here. The one thing I found when I owned Newcastle United was that the football club meant so much to them. It was their life. I had my business, and that's it, but it was a business to me, but I'm a, I'm a Geordie, so Newcastle was always in my heart. And I couldn't realise the sense how much it meant to them. And when we were winning... I always remember the, the, the businessmen or season ticket holders used to say, on a Monday morning, the, 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 the workers couldn't wait to get in to talk about Newcastle, about the win. We used to win the hand. <laughs> and they used to look forward to the next match. And so uh, they club is so much part of the region and we, we've got to look at it in that context and to, as to where the club's going. And that's something I've tried to, I, I can't influence it, but I can basically have my views, which I've got 
I think probably some strong views where the way not just Newcastle but the way football is going. I think it's to the detriment of the game for the fans. Just before we talk about your ownership, can I just ask what your first memory of Newcastle United is? Is it as a child or just anything that you I can, can tell remember? you, sir. We, I lived in Ashington, near Ashington, and my dad and all them Newcastle supporters. And of course, they worked all during the week, and Saturday was the only day we could get. And basically, we used to come to the home matches. And but then the ground wasn't developed, and this east, east side, which was just planks of wood <laughs> and, and dirt stand. And all the we're big family people, and so the families used to come. Four families used to get the number three bus from Ashington, Newbig, and Bedlington, and they all used to come at the same time at Newcastle, and would go down to the Corp Wholesale on Waterloo Street, and you would get measured for your clothes and that there on tick. You got a, a letter from the local branch and really please supply Mister Hall to the Somerset twenty pounds, and then we had fish and chips for lunch. And after lunch was finished, the men went to the football Newcastle, and spent out, and the women went shopping. And when the match was finished, we basically came back to the Haymarket where the United bus service ran, the number three bus. And we all, the women were in the queue, so we got in because of big queues then. And we got the bus home. And when Newcastle were playing at home, we went to the cinema. But my dad took me, I think, probably I was about eight, the first match. And we were on the popular side. But I don't even remember, people of my age, there were mud terraces and just sleepers. But at the back, and there was a retaining wall, and there was a, a, some planks of wood, river sleepers went up and to hold it up. And there was a, on the top of them, there was about a six inch ledge, and that went right along the back of the east side. And if you got in early, you could stand on there. So my dad used to put you on there, and he would go down there, and you could see the whole match. And that was my first recollection sitting on that plank of wood and watching Newcastle United at, at, at eight years of age. And then I was, you know, you're trapped in the tribe of Geordies. You didn't have any choice for yourself. You're, you're taken there, oh, this is the club. And so it became that service and meant so much to us. And that was eight years of age. Is that what inspired you then? Um, what? Who were the, the big players at that time? Um, I, I, I won't remember. I, but all later on, basically, we had the great player for me was Bobby Mitchell, the wizard, the left winger. Came from Third Atlantic, I think. He was brilliant. It was the time of Melbourne. Walker, that team in a sense that was that was a brilliant team. Uh, we had teams before that, but they did nothing. And uh, but that was the time I remember when they, they were they were the players. Great, but Bobby Mitchell was my star. That twinkle toes, a bit like Beardsley in a way. He could juggle the ball, and it's left winger. And I always remember when the players at Leeds at a cup time we got a penalty, and nobody would take it, and Bobby Mitchell just walked and put it down, bang, goal, and the one. And yeah, they're, the, they're the memories, but. That distant and that's head idiot. You start the start of fade of it, but I just have those happy memories. And there was a period when some of the managers were more useless and terrible, and uh, we didn't go, but we're still supporters. And the years passed so quickly, and then I got involved. You did get involved, and at, at, what, at what point did you think, I'm, I'm a massive Newcastle United fan, <clears throat> but I would love to maybe be, be a part of this, maybe to no, own the football never, club? Never, 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 never. never. Wow. The epitaph on my Head somewhere, but he never really wanted to own a football <laughs> I didn't. Uh, the story is true. I was building the Metro Centre and basically in second hand porter cabins, which were certainly in, I took a big gamble in the Metro Centre and I was building it there. And Malcolm Dix used to come and see me. He was had then, the, the, he was fighting the board 
and he couldn't win because he didn't have the money basically to, to do it. And he would come to see me, would you help me? I said, Mark him, I'm making money, am I going to spend it? You know, off you go. And this happened a number of times, and I didn't want to get involved. And I vividly remember that one Friday afternoon, the weather had been rotten, we'd had a bad week of problems on the side. And I was in my office, and this porter comes upstairs, a knock on the door, a little fella comes in, Bob Cass, reporter for the Mail on Sunday, and lived at Chesley Street. But I think it was a Macam. But I think Markham was a friend of Markham, so Markham sent him trying to get me to change my mind. And he brought in with him a bottle of whiskey. And this is true. And I'm not a whiskey drinker, but when you're in that, I was in that mood oh, about a week, etc. That's what I drank with him a bottle of whiskey. And when it finished, I said, All right, Papa, here what you say. I'll tell you what I'll do. I don't own a club, but I'll put half a million pounds on the table. If you can get another three people, so we've got two million pounds on the table to go to the board and say, here you are, put shares on the market and we'll buy them for the fans. It was a fans club. It's always been a fans club in my view. And that was the reason basically I got that what started off on that day. It was Bob casting a bottle of whiskey. But uh, and, you know, then after that, things started to roll. Did that ever happen again in the future when someone, you know, you they wanted you to fork out some money for a player? Oh, no, they brought a bottle of whiskey. No, no, no. I learned my lesson. <laughs> I was trapped in it. The story for that one, basically, that um, another three people came on board, um, Joe Robinson and um, Brian Reed and Bobby Pattinson came and promised money. And then we sort of formed the basically the Magpie group and we approached the board and the board... Um, actually put shares on the market a million pounds worth um, but the fans wouldn't take them as untrustable and by then I'd bought some shares up and um, to sort of get some position of power I kept my one I had 20 or 30% and, that. and the, the put Douglas and I on the board and uh, Freddie Shepard had joined us with his shares and so we went on the board and, and um, the whole intention was just basically to get the share issues when the fans didn't take them up that was it and what we're doing I, I, I think it was about maybe 40 percent we'd got to or probably the largest single shareholder in the club and i always remember as i was um, myself and uh, douglas and freddie and i went for a holiday thomas cook um had it was 150th anniversary and they arranged a world trip and those 80 millionaires went on this plane around the world for a month Great holiday, <laughs> and uh, twenty-one and a half thousand pound it cost each. Forty-two thousand, forty-three thousand for me and my wife and I. I've had a great time, but I got to halfway around the the, the time, and I got to Repulse Bay in Hong Kong. <clears throat> Just had a meal. Manager comes around. Is there Mr. Hall here? Mr. Hall here. So yeah, here I am. Telephone call for you. I said, oh, it's over there. Well, I was on here. Yeah, anyway, I got there, and it was afternoon in England, and it was Douglas and Freddie Shepherd from the boardroom of Newcastle. And he said, Dad, the club's going bust. I said, what the hell do you mean it's going bust? I've just left you two weeks ago. It cannot have. <laughs> he says, it has, Dad, and you've got to put money in. I was on the phone, I think it was, on the 40 minutes, and it cost me, I think it was 685000 a telephone call to pay our share. So I wasn't too happy. And when I got back home, I found out what had happened. And the, the old board had an overdraft of a million from Barclays Bank. But it had to be spent on the management of the club, not new players. 
but they went out and bought somebody for 300,000, I can't remember who it was, the manager, and Barton's Bank pulled the plug and said, fund yourselves a million. So we being the, the biggest shareholder, the old board wouldn't put their money in, I said, put our money in. So I said, this is a nonsense, we're kind of going like this. I said, we'll launch basically a campaign to buy the shares. And that's when the Magpie Group was formed. And um, it was Martin Dixon's on board. And he brought on board fellows like uh, John Woff and Alan Rooney and people like that who were the, the, the runners and the ideas. But they knew exactly where the shares were. And I just funded them. And I gave them basically blank checks, 100,000 of share that everybody got to. And eventually that team, and the, the, the fans owe a, a lot of thanks to that team for the work they put in and for, especially and John Woff knew everything about them. And, and Magnum Dix had fought for years and basically and eventually got to 80, 90%. And I was, in the own, I was the owner of a football team. I didn't really want a football team, but as a businessman, well, how do I make this work? It cost me about 10 million, I think, to buy the shares in the club. And after that, money you put in. Oh. We found ourselves owning a football club, which we didn't really want. And I said before, Epitaph on my grave will be he never really wanted to own a football club. But as a businessman, you're in for a lot of money, you have to make it work. So, one of the, one of the best contacts we've made with Newcastle Breweries, they supported the club for years and years. And basically, Alistair Wilson, and, and, and the team there basically helped us a lot. And they, I said, well, I need a chief exec. He says, there's a man in Scotland just leaving Rangers, a Fletcher, Ferry Fletcher, the Rodweiler, as we call him. <laughs> Send him down. So he came down. This is the situation. What I, I, I'll start with it. So Freddie came, one of the best finds I've ever found. He was the Rodweiler. He ran the club behind the scenes. He knew where. I think he also knows where the, the bodies are buried. They <laughs> <laughs> never told me. I said, did you have a pay agent? Oh, no, 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 no. I think they did. But anyway, they, they ran the club with my son and Freddie Shepherd and Fletcher and um, the rest of the team were all there. Um, and they put it together. And um, with the help of the brewery, I just started to take over. We needed a manager. And the brewery said to them, they said, look, we know Keegan wants to come back. He's been in Spain for six years, playing golf, basically, but he wants to come back. So next plane, appointment, fly out, Freddie and uh, Douglas, Keegan, yes, did a deal with him, and he came back. So we found him, he found us. And it was, I suppose it's magic. They sort of meeting of two bodies, two people, in a sense, with the same views. And we just... He'd never, never lost his interest in the game. And he knew where every player, a good player was. He must have read the papers and studied everything. and been watched matches, but he knew exactly when he came who he wanted to buy. So we provided, I think, he had 60 million out of us at that moment, over a period, which was a lot of money then for players. And he just went out and he bought players. And it was unbelievable. Basically, the way they played, it was the, were everybody's second team. And the football they played, you couldn't wait. For, even I couldn't wait for the next game. <laughs> And um, it just uh, it was a wonderful time. And um, it's a pity we didn't win things. We've always been the brides, we're never the bride. And that time, we're 12 points in the lead. We're actually planning the victory parade. And we start to lose a few matches at the end. And the board decided to offer them the money for a Sunday half. Go and buy someone to play the ball. No, 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 I'll do it my way. And unfortunately, it 
went against us and we lost. Had we won the league that time, it would have established us at that level. You've got to win things to bring... Players will come off your successful. They came for Keegan. That's why Janor, one of them, came. They came for Keegan because you're playing exciting football. But I look back in the sense that time, the best player, I think, it was Rob Lee. Yeah. Or was seven million. I mean, he was a great forward and a great defender, and lovely for ten years. You know, it's very not very often you get somebody for ten give you ten years service. So it was basically the football was exciting. There's great times. We're in Europe, traveling around Europe, <clears throat> a fan that tells you story after story, but it was just uh, uh, just. But the, the times we got um, a little story I might repeat, and uh, the time when we were, we had to get out of the second division in the first. And if we played Grimsby that night, and uh, if we won, we got up. And I, I, I drove myself there, my wife, and then we had the Bentley. And, then, and I got the end of the M62, and that's a little chef. And I pulled in, my wife wanted a smoke, and I wanted a cup of coffee, and we sat. So we had that, we came out, and we're just getting into the Bentley, and there was a battered old transit van came and parked about 10, 15 yards away on the other side. The back doors opened, and 15 of them poured out didn't see us, and went to the nearest hedge and started to have a run off. I'm standing there, and I shout, give me the number of your season tickets. And I was a shout. They all ran back into the van. Some of them hadn't finished. <laughs> Two minutes later, they came back and queued up, heads down, and apologised, and said the travel down creates a beer brown ale. No service station would let them stop. Because there were trouble. <laughs> so not the whole of them, but so they reached the point of where they couldn't go any longer. So I said, "I'll tell you now." And I remember, and if, if it happened again, I remember the number of your season tickets. And basically, and my wife says, "And I won't forget you either, but it wouldn't be by your faces." <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, some of those people can remember. I said, "Yeah, they're the stories, you know. They, they had hundreds of other fans, the, the great times. That's the clue was so much to them, and." Um, and that's the thing that came to it's like the northeast, you know. In my days, the good thing is we're a family, we're all from working class roots. I'm a working class fella, even though I'm a base gym, not an airstream. I never go to university because I was not that clever. I knew my position in industry and business. Yeah, basically, we're all from mostly working class roots, the mining industry and heavy industries, etc. In my pet village, Nashik, nobody's ever left alone in that village. It was a thousand souls, the manager said, and everybody worked in the pit. But in the morning when you got up as a young kid, before you went to school, you had to go up the street to see Maggie Smith. Tap on the door. Are you okay? I'm okay. And when you told your mother, if there was no answer, a man was told to go knock, uh, no, break the door in and used to, to see if she was okay. And used to take soup down, a food down. And that was the atmosphere and everybody. And when they killed the pig in the back street, everybody was there with a half crown basically to get some spare ribs or something like that. And that was, that's what you're born into. And you never forget, might not be the most salubrious. Because I used to tell you the story, which is quite against myself and everybody. <laughs> I live at North Eaton Corridor. This is typical. We didn't have flush toilets. And the, the rough 34 houses were here. There was a, a mud street. And across the mud street was basically netties. And there were the middens where you went and did business. Mm -hmm. And on a Monday morning, the middenmen came and, cleared out all the waste and took it away. But there was a door there and a door there, and in between them was the where the mid was, and there was a gap and a wall, and that was your goalpost. <laughs> and when you played football on the back street and you were in goal, you couldn't afford to let that ball go past. <laughs> 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 when, I, when I 
my own Newcastle, we had the lunches with the when the when we played, the other way team came and the directors came. I used to say Newcastle had the best choice of goalkeepers. I also wish to tell the story. <laughs> and I used to look at. I said that was true. That was like you'd never let the ball go past because you had to go and get it and wipe it. <laughs> and and it was, but it was it. That's the region. But we have to lift up the region. We have to go. You cannot live in the past. As I said you must move forward. It's like the football. How do we move the football forward? Do we, in a sense, take the Saudis' big bid? What's on for the Newcastle future? And um, I, I sold it, as I told you, when the Brumbers came in, and I couldn't compete. And um, I took the money with that. Basically, there was no way I was going to stay in the game. I had big rows with Douglas and Freddie, the Shepherd, and um, it was Freddie's life, and he did a hell of a job as vice chairman. Tremendous job. And took off from me in most times because I was building my business. But it's basically, I just felt that I, I couldn't take it on anymore. And uh, I was proven right. But uh, well, it was great times. It was. Um, going back to the early days of Kevin Keegan. Oh, yeah. It was a huge risk with, for taking on someone of no managerial experience. But obviously, still an icon in the game. Was there any other managers on your shortlist, or was it no. just purely Kevin no, we, was the man? It was instantaneous. We took at the club one day. We sat down and said, wow, the team was there. Russell Cushing and his team in the management side. And they just went on block, and they've done a, they had a tremendous... Russell knew everything about the management of the game. He was... You know, Russell, get on with that. He knew exactly what to do in the Premier League, and the league, etc. And um, we were there. We were in the club. What do we need? We've got a management team. We need a manager. Oh, we might have looked at a few names and we're talking. What was the brewery, basically, who were actually on the at the at the desk at the table with us? They had a seat at the table, and they said, "Look, Keane wants to come back." Oh, because he had a tremendous rapport with the fans at the castle. Yeah. And so we said, right, "Let's go and see him." It just happened like that, and they went to see him. And we're caught. We found Keegan, and Keegan found us. And the two jumped together like that, and that was the best years of Newcastle I've ever seen. You know, that was just something that happened. There was no second manager, thing, just him. I love the. We took a risk, yeah. but in a sense, but you know, but what do we have to lose? You know, we're yeah. newcomers. And that's it. these are the decisions you make in business. If, so you win some, you lose some. But Keegan had a tremendous rapport. He knew the game, etc., and we took a risk, and it worked. I love the quote, actually. I'm going to read this early because I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It was, the two people are talking to each other right now can save Newcastle United and you've got the passion and I've got the money. And I, I, I look, obviously, look at the current day and everybody will say, we're lacking this, we're lacking that. But that passion and that drive from Kevin Keegan, it was just it was just so amazing to watch from, it didn't have to be a Newcastle fan, to, you know, to have a manager who would go out to the top of the turnstile, the top of the stairs, and explain his reasons for Andy Cole, for example, that wouldn't happen nowadays. No, because but that was the bond we had with the fans. It was like before I took the club over, I would take them over. Uh, we had we went to we went around the the clubs, and we used to have meetings at all the clubs from the northeast, telling the supporters they used to come there. The workmen come. This is what we're going to do. You're either with us or against us. And as long as you explain something to them, then they're with you. And that's that's how we sold ourselves to the fans. And we basically, I think we we did what we said we were going to do. And unfortunately, things didn't go on. But uh, it was when Kevin left for circumstances and um, uh, nothing remains the same forever, unfortunately. It's one lesson you learn. 
Um, but uh, no, the two was it just gelled. It just it was a it was a magical moment in soccer, in business and soccer in life, and the two parties came together, and we backed them. And I think it was about sixty million we gave at the time. We found were found from players, etc. Because we had to take it from the business to put in, and um, it's, it's the one lesson I learned in terms of you have to put money into the game if you're going to build a team. You can, unfortunately, the market, it's the marketplace sets the levels. And I, there's no way could I, as I said before, with the Bromwich, there's no way, no way I try to. So you have to take a common sense approach and not be, not be a silly fool and try to compete with them because we didn't have the cash to compete with them. But um, we did our part. I just feel sad. So I had great plans. <clears throat> I was, I saw at the time we used to have lots of young players, good players, who left the area because they never got a chance. And I wanted to basically, I thought, I'll set up in the region from Berwick down the, as far as we could legally with the restraint you have on your catchment areas under the, under the league. I would set up um, academies. And I would basically say, in Berwick, said to Peter Beatty, who retired, would you go up there, Peter, and be the manager? And your job is to find the players, the kids, bring the kids through, and bring them through, in a sense, pick the best. And the best will come down to the main academy in Newcastle. So like feeder ones. But at the same time, we used those academies where the players went and we talked to the kids to ambition and you know, get them to keep off drugs and try to help them live a lifestyle. Because we have that responsibility. And I think we could, the players influence young people more than teachers or anyone. They look up to the stars and you have, they have a great role to play in my view. Still have. And I think we should do more of it because it's out of its foundation and it's actually getting the community, but we've actually got to pull them together and use them because, as I said to you, I went to a college the other day just talking about what they're doing in the area. And generally the, the kids that come in are C-stream, but 80% of them are on cannabis or heroin. Now, it's something I can't understand. I believe it's happening. So we've got to get to those kids and how do we get them? Football players, sport can play its part. And I wanted to use sport all over the region for those reasons. But at the same time, uh, the, young, the players that the, the young kids that didn't become players were the next generation of supporters. So self-preservation in the way. <clears throat> and uh, I wanted, to, and so I had each academy. I wanted six of them in the northeast, and each academy had a football team, and they play each other in a little league. And the winners would then basically play at the, the, the academy here in Newcastle. And I wanted to give the player, of the, the junior player of the year, a green jacket like the golf, you know? That's fantastic. I wanted to give him a green jacket so he was the best. I wanted actually reward achievement. Yeah. Get that to the kids that they can do so much. I wanted to use soccer, but didn't have time to do it. But that's basically the, the dream I had, using football. It wasn't to me just football team. It was about the region. I've always fought hard for the region. And Ashington, my hometown, gave me what I've got to basically. And I'm helping them now as much as I can. But that's the dream I have for Newcastle. I more than a football team, just a part of the community. It has that influence. I can't, I, I sat down at times and said to my wife, I can't believe it. The football team is all they've got. Our businesses, I, that's something I couldn't take in. But it was their life. They didn't have kids after the players. You know, so we have that responsibility. We cannot use it in the wrong way. And... I don't think I, I, I might have done it at a given time, but uh, if a problem would change everything. 
Yeah, my wife wouldn't let me call my son Alan Shearer, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, one thing I remember um, when I first started supporting Newcastle when I was five or six years old, I mean, in the Midlands, I mean, in a, in a parallel universe somewhere, I should be supporting Wolves or Aston Villa, but... The not, Villa. Not for me. <laughs> not for me. But um, I remember you being um, kind of at the, the forefront of kind of technology and, and, and a visionary almost. I, I even remember when the club launched its website and you wanted to involve... Um, the Falcons rugby team and and the, the whole all the other sporting clubs around the area was that kind of part of your vision for <coughs> the club in the area? I'll tell you what happened, sorry. We Sky Television was there. Vic Wiggling was a Geordie and he was head of Sky Sports. He's unfortunately died some years ago, but he's a great pal of Newcastle. And we used to have some he used to come to Newcastle a lot and we'd sit down over lunch and that debate that time said what's going to happen with television? And he said, well, we're going to get interested. It's long before they got interested. But we need the content. We need the match. We need the sport. And sport's going to play a big part. I said, oh, that's great. So basically I thought, well, okay, if we can set up a sporting club of all the sports, we can use that content on television, which would help make money and put, get the Northeast onto the television all the time. So that's why I went out to set Newcastle, Newcastle Sporting Club. And there was five million in the rugby, five million, which was a lot of money at the time. The money was in the game, and when and I, I bought the rugby, the football rugby, the ice hockey, and the basketball for a time, and none of them really made any money. But I thought maybe we could change it with TV. I was before my time, and it cost me a lot of money. I was I was experimenting in a way, but it didn't come off, and that's what I was trying to do, just to get the northeast embodied in sport for television and that will help us market the area if we had a great you get a lot of time on television if, for sport and if you can use that as part of the northeastern build the name of the northeastern then it gets an image that image brings industry here it changes the perception of people outside the area about the northeastern that was the, these are the things i tried and i was just a, i'm just a local lad but in a sense i could see that vision i've been around the world etc i'm a cool graduate but the northeast is my home i've made my money here and it's, it's here, I'm sitting here today, still here after all these years. I haven't run away, I'm still here. Did you almost copy the, the Barcelona vision? Because Barcelona <coughs> was this, the, have that reputation of a sporting club as well. And they, they, you, you see, I think, basketball matches are on with Barcelona as well. And it's, they've got the same colours, they've got the same crest, it's yeah. the same organisation. Did they play a little part? I, I, I used to go, I had a house in Spain, so to go there. I went to watch Marcelo a few times from Marbella and up there. But I saw what they were doing. But just to thought, oh, this is a great idea if we can do it together. But they had a massive, massive, massive fan base. I didn't, I don't think clubs that are owned by the fans were ruined at the end of the day. And they were, they've been subsidized by the Catalonian government for years. They cannot run on their own. They're losing millions of pounds because they spend too much money. There's nobody totally responsible. And all the fans want money in. And basically, unless the fans are going to put the cash in all the time or whatever, uh, and, the, 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 and I can't. I don't think at the end of the day the fan-run club will actually work, and unless you get success and you get money in from other sources. Um, you've got to have a source of funding somewhere, like the the Saudi Arabians, etc., or the pension funds, whatever. Nowadays, but um, I like the idea. But I, I just developed the own idea. I've had it for some time in the northeast, you know, about doing these things. But it was it was probably I thought at the time, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's try it. 
I mean, when you were in Spain, you never thought of calling in Barcelona just saying, seeing how much they wanted for Ronaldo or Rivaldo. <coughs> no, at the time, the sums of money they were talking about, etc. They were they were a club beyond most people's dreams. Um, as I said to you, they've got this, but they're a national club, and they're the only one club in Catalonia, and the the, the money was poured in against. There was this rivalry between Madrid and Barcelona. Madrid gave. Um, Real Madrid, lots of money, training grounds, etc., and Barcelona the same. None of the clubs have ever got that support from government. It's not part of our psyche, but in fact, they got it, and that's that's how they enlist. That's how they survive. In the sense that, and there were, it was it was this rivalry made people in Barcelona said, Let, "Let's keep our team going against each other." They hated each other in so many many ways because of the civil wars, etc., and that was part of the thing. But I don't think that would happen over here. I love the ambition that you talk about with everything, not just necessarily Newcastle, your own businesses, and you've been very, very successful. An um, ambitious move, some would say, would be bringing in an Alan Shearer. And can you tell our subscribers, our listeners for this podcast, tell you what how did it happen? Exactly. How did it happen? Freddie Fletcher, the chief exec we had, the Rod Weiler, was a great pal of Jack Walker when Jack Walker owned Blackburn. And Freddie and him just got on like that. And Freddie did with most people. And um, he had an understanding with Jack Walker. If Jack Walker ever came to sell Shearer, would he let us know? And a call came in one day. Jack Walker, Freddie, Man United on Shearer. If you can find 15 million, he's yours. Rather than Man United. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're joking. No, no, no. So how much you got? How much you got? What can they find? And the brewery stepped in and they gave us a lot of cash up from the deals we had with them for five-year funding. They brought it forward and we put cash in. And that's how we afforded basically the... Yeah, we, we, we repeated the people and got all the cash together. <clears throat> and that was how Alan Shearer came because actually fact, the deal with, between Jack Walker and Freddie Fletcher. The fans have got to uh, thank Freddie Fletcher. And Alan came, and I remember that day, I think it was 12 and a half or 15,000 people in the stadium. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know, you, the, 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 the normal English clubs kind of compete with the money. The latest, what did you say, for Grealish? 100, 100 million pounds, apparently. Well, you know, we kind of, there's nobody can compete with that. Nobody should try to compete with that. There's got to be some, so look, if there's common sense isn't coming to the game, it'll drive the game away from the fans. Yes. You might be Man City, where yes, it's great, we've got the team, but the rest of football's there, and the rest of football needs to be looked after. If you don't look after it, you'll destroy it. And it's wrong. It's a culture. It's a culture, and it's people's culture, the way we live, and it should not be destroyed. And I'm a money man by the money men coming in. Just purely one thing. They're not coming in for our teams in our game. They're coming in to exploit it because they've seen how the Super Leagues and the rest of it, the money they can make. And to me, it's a wrong thing for soccer. And I only hope, basically, that it doesn't come off. But I don't think they've gone away. I think, basically, they're sitting there, waiting their time. Now, money men in charge. Money men. The money they're talked about, we cannot even think about. It was started by the old factory owners, attempted to take the workers' minds off revolution. And it developed into the time until George Easton came in and challenged them, the thing so they got, they got a better wage. And then it became the sport and sport and money football. The two games, sport and money came together. But now it's going the other way and it's just the finance of football, the money in football. 
and that's not the sport anymore. It is. I mean, beggars of beggars belief. How much do you think Alan Shearer would be worth nowadays? <laughs> you couldn't even put a figure on it. No, it's, it's just a case of how much you want them and these people. How much have try to put yourselves in the mind? How how much does somebody pay if you're a big Arab owner with now unlimited wealth from oil and the gas and the rest of it coming in, and you're there sitting and you want your nation to have an image, you're changing things, you're going to, what, what, what is 100 million to them, 200 million to them? You know, it's a sum of money. They'll want, they want, they're looking at now glory. They're getting something for their nation if they're a successful football team and it's globalized, etc. And I think basically that's, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for some image. Because the money's not in it at the moment. They're going to have to play amongst themselves. You know, can you remember when a club used to be worth Man United about seven hundred million, and suddenly it's got to three billion? But the people that are players in that are the hedge funds, are the glaziers, and are billionaires themselves. They're playing in that league. Very few of us have got the cash to play in that league. So it's actually become a game for a certain group of people, and some money funds. And I only would say to the government, to the sports minister and to the Premier League, please, please, please save the game of football for the fans. Save the culture. It's so much to us. Everything's changing in the world. You can't, as I said before, you can't live in the past. And so too often the Northeast has always lived in the high industry, etc. But the world, I went to a conference um, a few years ago and I went to a French meeting and it was the fourth industrial revolution. And I went to tell you what's happening, and on that was a video, and on it was a machine laying bricks, and straight runs. They put the bricks in like, and the machine went, perfect. And I thought to myself, what the hell are we going to do with the briggies? How do we educate them? And this is the changes coming to us. And we're still, you know, we've had all the money poured into the Northeast over the years, and yet we still have the same problems. And there was a report done recently by a think tank which said this, that all the money put into the development areas has not solved the problems. So in fact, we have these inbuilt problems and it's a case of where do we go? How do we take the areas into the next generation? And sport is part of it, as I said, but it's, it's a problem I cannot solve. I'm at 88, I've tried to help, but these people who are beyond me have, can have the mind to understand the way industry is going. But I just, I wonder about the area. A man who was well loved in this area was Sir Boy Robson and his little spell, I say little spell, his five years spell at Newcastle, a lot of fans can remember. But is it true that you nearly got him a couple of years beforehand at Barcelona? You're quite right, Billy. In many, many ways, Bobby was the most successful manager we had because he kept us in Europe more longer than anybody else. When Keegan went, um, he's time to the time. We looked around for the manager, and again, again, the brewery said to us that um, Bobby Robson was in Barcelona with Elsie's wife, and um, they'd heard. No, sorry, it was Joe Melling of the Sport uh, uh, Sunday, the Mail on Sunday, and Joe Melling and Bob Cass were the reporters for the Mail on Sunday. And Bob Cass was the one who got me in, and we became very good friends with us. And Joe Melling said to us basically, <coughs> "I think um, Barcelona. He'd heard of Barcelona were going after Van Gaal." They wanted Van Gaal after Bobby. But the Bobby had a two-year contract and he ended the first year and they were hoping to get Van Gaal at the end of Bobby's contract. But the truth is Van Gaal left right in the middle of Bobby's contract. And so the rumour was that they were going to move Bobby upstairs and bring Van Gaal in now. 
he says, the time, so we went across, we flew across, I was in the house in Marbella, went up surreptitiously to, to Barcelona, and the lads flew in, and we, from all different roles, quietly went in, and we met Bobby and um, Joe Melling, made all the arrangements. It was a lovely sunny day in Barcelona, and his garden, beautiful garden. Elsie came out and had drinks, etc., and sandwiches and things, a long chat, and we said to Bobby, he said, no, let's not do that to me. No, no, no. I said, tell you, Bobby, that's what's on the cards. You're going upstairs. I hadn't told him. And Bobby was sitting there and said, oh, didn't know whether to believe us or not. But Elsie said she wanted to come back. And so he said, yes, I'll come. So that was great. So we shook hands on it. That was great. And I went back to the house in Marbella for a few days. And then Freddie and Douglas came back. I rang Bobby that evening from, from Marbella just to talk about the arrangements. And I knew in the tone of his voice he changed his mind. He could not still believe that Barcelona would do that to him. He's prior to sense, I suppose. And um, so he didn't come. And two months later, a month later, he was upstairs and Van Gaal was installed. That's what happened, ruthlessly on. And then, of course, basically, we went and got other managers. Some of them were useless in the period when I had managers who were, quite honestly, the pundits on television now were useless managers to us. <laughs> oh, some of the football they played. Was was terrible, and we went through that dead period. And then Bobby eventually came. Was two years later. He went. I think it was Sporting, or something, and yeah. and he came with us. And then he, he had that successful reign. He was probably, as I said, the most successful manager at getting us into the top tiers at Turkish. We're in, we're in Europe quite a lot, things. And now he's get to decide when he died, but he knew about football. He was just basically dedicated to the game, and he, he's one of the old masters. And uh, no, he was a great chap. And unfortunately, he had the cancer and he died. But uh, had he come in the beginning, it would have been a different team. And that's where we leave it for this week's instalment of our big interview with Sir John Hall. Next week, you will hear us talk to Sir John about current day Newcastle United, selling the club to Mike Ashley, and uh, lots of other little nuggets in there as well, Johnny. Yeah, including potential Saudi bid, what his thoughts are on the Saudi bid, and Amanda Stavely, and what his best moment as a Newcastle United fan and a Newcastle United owner is as well. So certainly not to be missed, um, but this first part, quite explosive really, wasn't it, Sam? It was. What did you, what were your thoughts when, like, because obviously we've all heard the first part of the interview now, so people will have, make your own minds up. But how were you feeling when you were going into being led into Sir John's house? Because I got there slightly before you and I was talking to him on his driveway when you and Lee pulled up. Um, what were your thoughts and feelings? I don't know, to be honest with you. I was... I don't like. Look, I don't get. I don't really get nervous, but the only thing I would say is you will, it doesn't matter who you're interviewing, you just want to get that first question. As soon as you, it's like, like I said to you and Lee privately, it's, it's like a footballer getting the first touch, the first pass, and now they, they feel like they're in the game or a goalkeeper making a catch or a save and they're, they're, they're in it. Um, but when I was walking, I was thinking, some of these, the, the pictures, you could just, as soon as you walk in and there was pictures everywhere, and I was just thinking, some of these are probably worth thousands. And like it led us into like almost like a, a living room and, and 
it was just very relaxed, wasn't it? I I'll tell you how normal it was. Just a couple of cups of tea, a cup of coffee, and a couple of Kit Kats for twenty minutes until we were getting set up. And it was just a nice just talking about current day affairs in terms of football now. And you could tell like his brain was almost working overdrive, thinking, well, hundred million pounds for Jack Rios, that's when the, the day of the interview was. Wow, that's mental and so that's where football's going, it's wrong, but that's where it's going and I can't compete. And you know, it, it's it's it was really, really interesting to speak to Sir John. And um, I felt, I don't know if I, I didn't feel like proper nervous. I just felt, look, let's just make sure we get it right. And like, and I, and I don't know, I don't know if that's what I came across Sam, when we were talking after we went, we went, the, went in the key side and that we wanted to just make sure we got it right. And I felt that we, we felt that we asked the questions that people wanted to hear from with both parts, but especially that first part about how he got into Newcastle United, it's obviously the Magpie Group story. I thought that was really, really important because I don't think he actually ever really wanted to be involved until a little bottle of whiskey got involved, as you mentioned. Uh, to him, is it about every decision? Is a bottle of whiskey involved? Be good if there was. Um, but he, he was very good at like making you feel at ease. Like when I pulled up on his driveway, he was just sorting some stuff out in his garage, like you would if you were to go and see your granddad. Like he's always just tinkering in his garage with his tools or whatever. So that was um, it. Was it was very surreal. Um, but yeah, that that's the first part. Thank you very much for listening. Um, please do remember to drop us a five star review if you're listening on iTunes, and subscribe if you haven't already. So that was part one of Sir John Hall. See you next week for part two. <laughs>